Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Mariah W. Stewart was a free black woman who lived in Boston, Massachusetts from the early 1820s to the early 1840s. She was the first American-born woman to lecture in public on political themes and likely the first African-American to speak out in defense of women's rights. A forerunner to Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, she was intensely religious and regarded as outspoken and controversial. For more than a century, Mariah W. Stewart's life contributions have remained obscure, illustrating the double pressures of racism and sexism on the lives of African-American women. I met with Mariah W. Stewart in the person of Chautauqua scholar Professor Sandra Kamasukiri during the 1996 Democracy in America Chautauqua programs held in Ukiah, California. This program was originally broadcast in November of 1996. In this interview, I spoke first with Mariah W. Stewart and then with Professor Kamasukiri. We began when I asked Ms. Stewart to comment on the differences between the lives of free black women in the North and women who were slaves in the South. I often spoke of this subject in my lectures when I spoke before the people of Boston in the 1830s. In my view, there was very little difference between the free Africans in the North and those enslaved in the South. True, it is, it is, it is true that we are not under the lash of the slave driver, but what can be worse than the slavery of the spirit and the slavery of the mind, which is what we free Africans endure in the North? My understanding is that although you weren't physically tortured under the lash, you were still living in segregated communities. This is true. And bound out as young children to work in a defined form of work. You didn't have a choice. We did not have a choice. Many people have spoken to me and said that during my time, white children were bound out, or they used the term apprenticed. Yes, this is true. They were apprenticed into jobs and work, but these were things that would give them a good livelihood later on in their life. They were apprenticed as, as printers uh, and people of special trades. But the children of free Africans, we were always bound out or apprenticed as, as boot blacks, as laundresses, as seamstresses, uh, work that we would have to continue once we were released from being bound out. And we had no choice. There were only set jobs that we were, we were apprenticed to, if you want to use that term. You had to continue because this was the way of making money that you learned? A person was too old to learn something else? Young women were bound out until they were 15 or 18 years of age. Young men were bound out until they were 21 years of age. And so by then they had learned this way of work and way of living and they continued with it. But there is something more that of the free Africans in Boston, most of the women were domestics. They were servants and most of the men were laborers. When we tried to seek other types of 
work, we were turned away. In fact, let me tell you this story. On one occasion, I went to some of the white women in the community who owned businesses and I said to them, what if I should bring you some young African women with the best of credentials and references? Would you hire them? Would you have them work in your business? And they said to me, well, yes, we would hire them if it was up to us. But since it is not the custom, we fear that we would lose our public patronage. What a horrible thing this is, prejudice, that they would not hire these young women. And what was done about it? What could you do? For example, was the African-American Female Intelligence Society a way of addressing this? Uh, the African-American Female Intelligence Society, that's a group that I spoke to in 1832, and that was the year that they were formed. Uh, this group of strong women was dedicated to improving the life of Africans in the community and to moral uplift. And they did several things. Oftentimes they gathered together food and clothing for the people in the community who had none. They also gathered together to help each other learn to read and write. They were also a literary society where they read books together and helped each other in the area of education. They were a very noble group. But they were not a group who were able to let's say, create jobs for the African people. But were they a group that was able to go to the white community and stress this issue of equal employment for African people? They could stress this, but one thing you must understand is there was so much hatred against us at that time, is that I believed, and I often said this to my audiences, there is no people on the earth as despised as we Africans in America. And it is a thing that saddened my heart. And so since it was difficult to get jobs, one of the things I said to my audiences is that we must create our own. I said to them, if the whites will not give you a license for a store, then you must build your own store. Put groceries on one side and dry goods on the other side. And many people said, but we cannot get an education. And I went to the women. And these were women who were members of the African-American Female Intelligence Society. And I said, save your money. And in time, if you save your money, all of you, and put it together in time, you will be able to lay the cornerstone for a school. And we will be able to teach our own children. So I urged people to work together to build and to get their own money. I'm interested in the genesis of the hatred. Why were the African people hated? particularly in the North, where they were allowed to be free. Free um, to an extent. Free to an extent. A, a gentleman who spoke in your community er, earlier this week, a man by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville, in his book, Democracy in America, he observed, he said that nowhere is the hatred of the black greater than in those places that have never seen slavery, places such as the North. And I believe this to be true. And I, I try to understand, perhaps it is because they see us as people who will take the jobs from them. And so it is easy to identify us by the color of our skin. And so they, they, they have that anger. I know that in the North, uh, there was some anger because during the Revolutionary War, um, not a long time before my time speaking in Boston, a mere 
50 years or so, Massachusetts and other states in the North held slaves. These were slave states. And during the Revolutionary War, there were 60,000 African slaves who fled with the British and helped the British. Perhaps that is some of the, some of the anger. But I think it's, it's a number. It's, it's, a, it's a number of things that make for the hatred and the anger. But it is hatred that is unwarranted. Because we people of color, we have the same love of liberty and justice as the whites. And throughout your life, until your death in 1879, you saw this uh, hatred ebb and flow and continue through the Civil War until almost 15 years after the Civil War. I saw many changes. I know this. While there was hatred in my lifetime, I always met individuals. I cannot say that I hate whites. There were many evil things that were done against me. In fact, when my husband's estate was taken from me, when I was cast out into the street, I saw the evil ways of white men spreading themselves like the green bay tree. But through my lifetime, I also saw some of that evil wither like the grass and die like the herb on the, on the desert. So I know that these people, I know that one day they will have to stand before God. I know that God will take care of the African people. And these people who have done us such injustice on that day of judgment, those people, they will call out to the rocks and the mountains to hide them. Tell us how it was that the estate of your husband after his death was taken from you. Oh, that was such a sad thing. Oh, I, I watched my husband suffer until the day that he died. And, and I was so grieved and my heart was broken. I'd asked God to spare his life but on December 15th of 1829, my, my beloved husband died. We were married barely three years, and I lost him. And then two days later, on December 17th, 1829, a man who owned a tailor shop on the same street as my husband, a man by the name of Daniel B. Badger, he came into, a, into court with a document that he said was my husband's will. My husband owned a prosperous business in one of the most well-to-do sections of Boston, the Broad Street area. This will said that my husband's property, his entire state, had been willed to this man Badger. And the only thing that my husband willed to me was a bed and the bedclothes on it. And our last name was spelled cor incorrectly in this document. I was hmm. so shocked while the judge threw out that will. But just a few days later, the same man returned with a list of names. He said my husband had never paid his bills, and the judge gave my husband's entire estate to this man, and I was left absolutely penniless and homeless. And do you know later on in my life, a friend of mine who was present in the court found this man Badger's false will and my husband's will. They were both on file in that court. Now, I know that it was often a common thing for those Africans with property to lose that property when one member died. And as a woman, as an African woman, I was not allowed to speak out in court. There was nothing I could do. Were there any white people 
to whom you could go to speak a defense for you? Was that socially acceptable for you and the white community at that time? It, it was not socially acceptable because those whites who spoke out in defense of blacks, they paid a terrible price. One of my dearest friends, lifelong friends, is the famous William Lloyd Garrison, the editor of the newspaper, The Liberator. And there were times for simply operating that newspaper that spoke out against the injustices and the horrors of slavery. There were times when his life was threatened. There were times when he was beaten in the street. So it was not a safe thing for whites to do. Beaten in the street because he spoke out for equality for Africans yes. and uh, white people. Yes, absolutely. His life was, was often threatened. Let me ask you about uh, Liberia and the creation of the country of Liberia on the west coast of Africa. But first, I want to say that my guest this week is Mariah W. Stewart a free black woman who lived in Boston from the 1820s to the 1830s and who was also the first American-born woman to lecture in public on political themes and likely the first African-American to speak out in defense of women's rights. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Tell us about your feelings on the creation of Liberia, which I believe was created in uh, about 1822. Exactly. It was created by the United States in 1822, and it was created as a colony on the west coast of Africa, and its purpose was to serve as a place to which Americans could send free Africans. In the 1830s in America, there were two million Africans, and about 3% of those were free. Africans overall made up about 18% of the American population. And there was a feeling among slaveholders in particular that the presence of free Africans in America was a threat to slavery, is that those people enslaved could look at those who are free and wish for their own freedom. And in fact, the majority of free Africans lived in the southern states of the United States. And so a group of people began a movement which they called the American Colonization Society and its goal was to send all free Africans back to Africa, particularly to Liberia. They engaged in many means. There were community groups of whites who raised money to buy the passage for free Africans. There were some legislatures in different states that used state money to buy the passage for free Africans and they would send agents into our community and this angered me so much. Agents to do what? Agents to persuade free Africans to go back to, return to, to, to return to Africa. And in one of my speeches I stood before my audience and said that I am an American and before I'll be sent to a strange land I would rather be pierced through with the bayonet. I refused to go and I spoke out against it. Now, there were some slaveholders ho were in support of the colonization movement, but there were also some abolitionists who were in favor of the colonization movement. Some of them believed with right reason that free Africans would not be safe in America. So it was better for them to go to this new homeland, as it were, and start another life. And other abolitionists believed that slavery should be ended gradually and as 
slaves are freed one by one, then those free, newly freed slaves should then be sent immediately back to Africa. On a visit that I made to Liberia in uh, 1984, many of the people I spoke with talked about the problems of the colonization of Liberia in that it was colonized with people who came from all parts of the African continent and were put together in a small colony in Liberia. And they brought with them different languages and different cultures and different histories, including the slaves and the free Africans. And that they felt this created a, a very, very difficult situation. And then, in 1984, I was told that many of the political leaders of Liberia were the descendants of the slaves, as opposed to the people who had lived there indigenously. And I'm wondering what the thought was, if, if there was one, of the people from North America, the African people, who were going back to Africa about being part of this mix. I'm pleased to hear that this colony still exists in your time. I'm very saddened to hear that there have been problems with it. During my time, I think there was no thought as to what we would do once we were there. Perhaps the thought that we would be like the pilgrims, that we would work there and we would make a new land, a new home. The thought was to remove us from America. Without forethought as to what the new home would be like. Without forethought. Mariah Stewart, I want to thank you for joining us here on Radio Curious, and I wish that we had a little more time. But before we go, I want to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests at this point in an interview, and that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Ah, uh, an interesting book. Is it possible for me to name two? Please. Okay. I would say an interesting book, and this is a book that I always shared with my audiences and it surprised them, is a book called The Fair Sketches of Women, which was published, written in, by a man named John Adams in 1790. And in this book, Mr. Adams talks about the rich history of women across the centuries. He talks about the women in the 1500s who were warriors and poets and divines and scholars who read and studied in Hebrew and Greek. And I often said to the members of my audiences that we must work so that such women can rise up amongst us now. Is that John Quincy Adams? This is a man from England by the okay. name of John Adams. Not the American. Not the American. Okay. And the other book? And the other book. It's the greatest book of all, and I urge all people to read this book. It's a book that changed my life, and that book is the Bible. Mariah W. Stewart, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you. It has been an honor for me to be here. And Sandra Kamusakiri, welcome to Radio Curious. Yeah, this is great. This is a great program. I'm, I'm really pleased to have the chance to speak to you. Barry. Well, I'm, I'm really happy that you're here. Tell us about how you fit or chose or were chosen to be the character of Mariah W. Stewart? I think it's somebody's insight or one of those great things that sort of makes a, a, a turn in your life to something mm -hmm. new. The group that put this program together is a group called the Inland Empire Education Foundation. This is the Democracy in America that, yes, Chautauqua. That, exactly, that organized, that wrote the grant for, conceptualized the Democracy in America tour. And a nice group of people, less than half a dozen, who said that 
People are always complaining how things are sort of going to rack and ruin in America and in, com in communities, so let's do something about it. And through their own initiative, they put this together. Now, I was working for them as a consultant. They were developing other 19th century African-American characters. I teach African-American literature, so I was sitting and, and mm -hmm. helping them with the accuracy of the characters. They kept asking me to play Mariah Stewart, and I kept saying no. <laughs> uh, I've never done anything like that. I'm a teacher, and, and I can't even imagine it. And as I kept watching, I became more and more fascinated, and then I volunteered to audition to play uh, Stewart. They had a national call mm -hmm. uh, for all seven characters, so I went through their very, very rigorous audition uh, process. And uh, they selected me, and it's been a thrill. It's been one of the, the, the greatest things. Uh, it's, it's a thrilling thing to do Chautauqua. I understand that when you were doing a Chautauqua program as Mariah in Southern California, there was a person in the audience who really believed that you were a preacher and came up and, and asked to be blessed. Oh, that was astounding. It's so, it's, it's moving. I, Sometimes when we do these characters, there are people in the audience who are able to suspend their disbelief. But I began speaking as Stuart, and one section I talk about Stuart's conversion and her belief in God, her dedication of her life to speaking for God. And in the midst of that part, a man got up out of his seat, walked forward, stood in front of me and put his, bowed his head and put my hand on his head. Now people around, this is America, were getting nervous and were getting about ready to pounce on him. But then someone said, he wants you to bless him. And there was a minister in the second row who called out the blessing. I repeated the blessing with my hand on this gentleman's head. And then he looked up at me, he shook my hand and he walked away. It was the most moving thing for me. Tell us how you felt, the, the movement, the, the call, the call on you to bless him. When I looked at him, when he put my hand on his head, you know, I, there's that moment. He wasn't a kook. He wasn't drunk. He wasn't drugged, as some people thought. And I looked in his eyes, and he was a human being and had such nice eyes, and he believed. But on another level, so I was saying, okay, believe in God the, as the character. I believe in God. I dedicated my life to God. But then on another level, that's not acting. That's also truth. And mm -hmm. it was truth for him. And so in that moment, there was no performance. There was no character playing. And I was really honored and, and to, to do that for him. I mean, he also gave me a gift also, that I could have yeah. that effect, that positive effect on people. I, I can see that in your eyes oh. as we sit here and talk. <laughs> yeah, it was quite a moment. Yeah. I want to ask you, as the scholar, the genesis of the hatred in America that you spoke of as Mariah, and that I fear that you probably have experienced in your own life mm -hmm. towards African people. Sure now up into the 1990s. Yeah. You know, America's r racial history is so complicated and it's so, it's so tangled. And sometimes I don't know where to start. When I teach um, African-American literature and we're, come, and we're in the 19th century uh, and, 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 and talking about literature near and around the Civil War, um, sometimes I talk about it on a psychological level, is that 
when you wrong another person, just in your daily life, when you wrong another person and you do it knowing that you're wronging them and you hurt them grievously, then one of the things you fear is what? You fear that somehow they're going to get back at you. And so during this time you've got two million blacks by the time of the Civil War, 14 million blacks, most of whom have been enslaved. And people knew, they knew in their hearts that this was not, this was not right what they were doing. And so one fear is the human reaction, these people are going to get, get back at us. So I think there's the psychological fear. I also think there's the fear of guilt. Also when you hurt someone, you feel guilty afterwards. And, I, and, and most people, that's not a good a, a, a thing to feel. They find ways to avoid it. And one way is to shut out that thing that you've hurt. Um, another is, I think in the 90s, we're living with this legacy because the decision to end slavery, contrary to popular belief, was not a moral decision made by the American people. If it had been a moral decision, people rising up as a group and saying, this is wrong, this is immoral, we don't want to do, do it anymore, I don't think we would have the legacy of hatred. It was not a moral decision. It was a war maneuver by President Lincoln to end slavery. So I think we have the legacy because it was not something that was decided in the psyche, the hearts, the minds of Americans. It was one president's with his advisors legal maneuver. This will disrupt the South if we free all these people. The South was using blacks as labor uh, to help in their war effort. So uh, I think it's a lot of a lot of factors. I think it's economic. I mean, I could really get into capitalism, which depends on a large uh, labor base with a small pool at the top of, of halves. Yeah. So I think it's lots of factors. It's something, I think it's something though we're gonna have to sort out because, my last point on this, because of this, is that when you say, if, let's just take blacks, when you say that blacks are not human, then that means that y the person who says that, that when you say that, you have lost the ability to recognize the humanity in another person. Now, when you have lost that ability, it shows up in other areas. So we as a nation, we can say that um, America has an anti-black climate right now, but that inability to recognize the humanity in another person carries over into other areas. So we have problems with gender issues. We have problems recognizing the humanity in our children and recognizing how they need to be protected. We have problems respecting our elderly and seeing them as human. We have problems respecting those who are disabled and handicapped. So it carries over into, into other areas. And these are things we're going to have to rectify if we're going to be a healthy nation. Sandra, I'd love to talk more, but we're running out of time. And I want to ask you the same question I always ask at the end of an interview. Could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Oh, an interesting book that I've read lately. Um, you know, I, I would recommend that, uh, that someone read um, uh, Mariah Stewart's speeches and her book. Uh, it's in a book, uh, The First Black uh, Political Writer in America, edited by Marilyn Richardson, and she has an incredibly wonderful lengthy introduction that sets the historical background and context of life of free blacks in uh, Boston in the 1830s. So I would recommend that one. Learn more about Mariah W. Stewart. Sandra Kamusakiri, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Yeah, thank you, Barry Vogel. It's an honor to be here.
this archive edition of Radio Curious, Professor Sandra Kamasukiri portrayed Mariah W. Stewart, a free black woman who lived in Boston, Massachusetts from the 1820s to the early 1840s. This program was originally broadcast in November of 1996. The books that Mariah W. Stewart recommended are The Fair Sketches of Women by John Adams and The Bible. The book that Sandra Kamasukiri recommends is Mariah W. Stewart, America's First Black Woman Political Writer, Essays and Speeches by Marilyn Richardson. All Radio Curious programs are free at our website, radiocurious.org. Our phone is 707-462-6541. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Anastad is our associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.